You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, March 3rd, 2023 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, does drinking alcohol affect your dementia risk? From NPR News. And helping stroke patients regain movement in their hands. From the New York Times. Plus, what dentists wish you knew. Also from the New York Times. And more, time permitting. Here's our first report. Does drinking alcohol affect your dementia risk? We asked a researcher for insights by Bill Chappell from NPR News. If you're worried that drinking alcohol could raise the risk of dementia as you get older, a large new study from South Korea can provide some insights. That starts with the idea that, in general, cutting down on alcohol is a good idea. Maintaining mild to moderate alcohol consumption is associated with a decreased risk of dementia, whereas heavier drinking increases the risk of dementia, the study's first author, Dr. Kyun Hai John told NPR. One part of the study's conclusions seems to have surprised many people. It found that while dropping from heavy to moderate alcohol consumption lowered the risk of dementia, so did the initiation of mild drinking. Study sees a complex interaction of alcohol and health. Those who drank alcohol within the recommended guidelines are not advised to stop on the grounds of reducing the risk of dementia, John said, although cutting back on alcohol consumption may bring other health benefits, she said. Compared to people who didn't change their alcohol habits, John and her colleagues found that two groups showed a heightened risk of dementia, drinkers who increased their consumption and people who quit altogether. Quitters from any level of alcohol consumption showed higher risk of all-cause dementia compared with those who sustained the same level of drinking, according to the research paper. Much has been made of that aspect of the findings, as people try to parse whether it might represent a true cause and effect and a possible new data point in their own decisions about drinking. But the researchers warn that the higher dementia risks of people who quit drinking in their study are suspected to be primarily attributed to the sick quitter effect, which is defined as a person quitting or reducing a certain hazardous activity because of health issues. In other words, they may have quit drinking because their health worsened rather than their health worsening because they quit drinking. So what can drinkers do to limit their risk of dementia? When asked what surprised researchers the most in the results, John said it's the steep drop in risk when people cut back on alcohol, noting that heavy drinkers who moderated their intake were associated with an 8% decrease in risk for dementia from all causes and a 12% decreased risk of Alzheimer's disease. For the prevention of dementia, mild to moderate drinkers need to curb the increase in their alcohol consumption, while heavy drinkers should reduce it, said John an assistant professor of family medicine at CHA University in Gumi. People who do not currently drink alcohol should not be encouraged to start as a way to reduce dementia risk, she added. Alcohol is known to damage brain cells and impair memory and other functions. Current U.S. dietary guidelines urge adults to drink in moderation by limiting intake to two drinks or less in a day for men and one drink or less in a day for women. 
A key takeaway from the study, the researchers say, is that it suggests that even small reductions in alcohol consumption can help reduce dementia risk. The study included millions of adults. To look for potential associations between alcohol use and dementia outcomes, the researchers drew on data from the Korean National Health Insurance Service. The government-administered insurer offers free biennial health exams to every insured person age 40 and over. The study included nearly 4 million South Koreans, a specific cohort of adults who had consecutive NHIS health exams in 2009 and 2011. The exams include a questionnaire on medical history and personal habits, including drinking, smoking, and exercise, along with lab tests and demographic data. The research team categorized people into four drinking categories. None, mild, less than one drink per day, moderate, one to two drinks per day, and heavy, more than two drinks per day. In the U.S., a standard drink is considered to contain 14 grams or 0.6 ounces of pure alcohol, slightly less than the 15 grams used in the study. That equals a 12-ounce beer at 5% alcohol, a 5-ounce glass of wine with 12% alcohol, or 1.5 ounces of an 80-proof spirit. The researchers also sorted people according to whether they quit, reduced, sustained, or increased their alcohol intake. Then, starting from one year after the second health exam, researchers tallied which members of the cohort had been diagnosed with dementia through the end of 2018. The sick quitter effect. The sick quitter effect is based on the assumption that disease onset and changes in health condition lead to cessation of alcohol consumption, John said. So the risk for former drinkers is higher than that for abstainers, she said. In the study, former drinkers were mostly included in the non-drinker control group. But, she added, the poor overall health of former drinkers may result in overestimation of the protective effect of alcohol consumption, she said. The study's authors tried to compensate for that dynamic in a number of ways, but the sick quitter effect remains a source of potential bias, they wrote. Another complicating factor is socioeconomic status. The study found that people who quit drinking tended to be older and have lower incomes than people who maintained the same alcohol habits. On the plus side, the quitters did tend to be non-smokers and were more likely to get regular exercise. The Korean study also relied on people to report their own health habits, which researchers acknowledge as a limitation. What does science say about alcohol intake? Heavy drinking and binge drinking are linked to chronic liver disease, high blood pressure, several types of cancer, and a raft of other health problems, the CDC says. Excessive alcohol consumption also is associated with violence, accidental deaths and injuries, and harm to a developing fetus. Outside of the U.S., some recent advisories are more stringent. A massive international study in The Lancet concluded in 2018 that the safest level of drinking is none. And recently, Canada's newly updated guidelines caused a stir when it concluded that any level of alcohol consumption brings a risk and that people should restrict themselves to two standard drinks or less each week. Up next helping stroke patients regain movement in their hands. 
The results of an innovative study suggest electrical stimulation of the spinal cord could eventually help some of the many people disabled by strokes. By Pam Bellock from the New York Times. Heather Rendelick was 23 when she suffered a stroke that disabled her left side. Ten years later, her left arm and hand remain so impaired that she cannot tie her shoes, type with two hands, or cut her own food. But for an extraordinary month while participating in an innovative study, she suddenly was able to open a padlock with a key, draw a map of Italy, dip a chicken nugget in sauce and eat it with a fork, all with that left hand. It was like I actually had two arms. Oh my gosh, Ms. Rendelick said recently. Researchers from the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University implanted electrodes along her spinal cord, delivering electrical stimulation while she tried different activities. With stimulation, her left arm had greater mobility, her fingers had more dexterity, and she could make intentional movements more quickly and fluidly. The study, published in the journal Nature Medicine, represents the first successful demonstration of spinal cord stimulation to address weakness and paralysis in the arms and hands of stroke patients. The study was small and preliminary, involving only Ms. Rendelick and another patient. Several scientists said many questions remain about the technique's effectiveness and applicability, but that the research suggested spinal cord stimulation could eventually help some of the many people who experience strokes. I think there's enormous implications for improving quality of life, said Dr. Lumi Sawaki Adams, the program director in the Clinical Research Division of the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke, who was not involved in the research. Still, she said, we have to be cautious that we're not offering hope to many people when I think we're not there yet. Spinal cord stimulation has been used for decades to treat chronic pain. More recently, experiments delivering stimulation, either through surgically implanted electrodes or non-invasively through electrodes placed on the skin, have shown promise in helping patients with spinal cord injuries regain mobility in their legs and, in some cases, their arms and hands. But the approach has been mostly unexplored for stroke, partly because of differences in the location and type of damage, neurological experts said. Because strokes occur in the brain, it had been assumed that applying stimulation outside the brain would not provide the same bang for the buck, said Aaron Jayaraman, the executive director of the Technology and Innovation Hub at Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, a rehabilitation center in Chicago. He said the study, which he was not involved in, countered that assumption, instead suggesting that stimulating the spine, the pathway from the brain to hand and arm muscles, may help impaired limbs. Each year, more than 12 million people worldwide and nearly 800,000 in the United States experience strokes, said Dr. Karen Fury, the vice chair of the American Stroke Association's Stroke Brain Health Science Subcommittee. Initially, patients typically receive about six months of physical, occupational, and other therapies, she said, but then progress often plateaus. We have virtually nothing to offer people who are years out and have long-standing disabilities, said Dr. Fury, who is also the chair of neurology at Brown University's Warren Alpert Medical School and was not involved in the study. About three-quarters of stroke patients experience impairment, weakness, or paralysis in their arms and hands, said Dr. Elliot Roth, an attending physician at Shirley Bryan Ability Lab's Brain Innovation Center, who was not involved in the study. 
For many people, it's the toughest part of the stroke recovery process and tends to recover the slowest, he said. The patients who participated in the study had experienced different types of strokes and had varying degrees of impairment. Ms. Rendelick's stroke was hemorrhagic, caused by bursting blood vessels. The other, more severely impaired patient, a 47-year-old woman whom researchers did not identify, experienced an ischemic stroke, which is more common and involves blocked blood vessels. Researchers implanted strands of eight electrodes in two locations, corresponding to where neurosensory fibers from the arm and the hand enter the spinal cord. Marco Capogrosso, an assistant professor of neurological surgery at the University of Pittsburgh, said that the approach derived from the fact that with strokes, some neural areas remain undamaged. So if we can build this technology to amplify neural signals, maybe we have a chance to restore arm and hand movement, said Dr. Capogrosso, who led the research with Elvira Pirandini, an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at the University of Pittsburgh, and Douglas Weber, a professor of mechanical engineering at Carnegie Mellon's Neuroscience Institute. Five days a week, for four hours each day, researchers activated the stimulation, calibrated it to determine optimal parameters for each patient, and asked them to attempt various movements and tasks. Right away, the effect was noticeable. The very first day in the lab and the first time they turned it on, I was sitting in a chair, and they asked me to open and close my hand, and that's something that's really difficult for me, Ms. Rendelick said. As her husband and mother watched, I immediately was opening and closing my hand, she said. We all broke down in tears. Over four weeks, she was given increasingly challenging tasks, like gripping and moving a soup can. With stimulation, her left hand moved 14 small blocks over a barrier in a box, compared with six blocks without stimulation. Typically, when Ms. Rendelick, age 33, who works at home for a company's human resources department, tries to make her left hand do something like grasp a pen, her arm feels like it's made of rock, almost disconnected from her brain, she said. With stimulation, it was like my brain was able to find my left arm so much easier, she said. The other patient, who was given simpler tasks because her left hand was almost completely paralyzed, improved in skills like reaching. Researchers also tested a sham stimulation, activating electrodes randomly to see if patients responded to a kind of placebo effect rather than stimulation targeted specifically to their arms and hands. Both performed better with targeted stimulation. The patients sensed the stimulation, but it didn't cause pain, rigidity, or safety problems, researchers reported. The approved study protocol required removing the electrodes after 29 days, but one month later, the patients retained some improved abilities, surprising researchers. We thought it was not possible after only four weeks of stimulation, Dr. Pirandini said. It is unclear exactly why the benefit can persist, Dr. Capogrosso said, but he hypothesized that the same neural processes that allow these people to use this stimulation method also lead to a recovery of movement when the stimulation is off. He added, we're not creating new fibers, but we're definitely re-strengthening what there is. Several experts noted that this pilot study was not designed to answer the most relevant question for patients. Can the improvements in laboratory tasks translate into skills that matter in daily life? 
It's a first step among hundreds, said Dr. Daniel Liu, a professor and vice chairman of neurosurgery at the University of California, Los Angeles, who co-authored a 2016 study that showed that spinal stimulation from implanted electrodes improved hand strength and control in two spinal cord injury patients. Dr. Liu said he believes stimulation is promising, but that its impact in the new study was difficult to evaluate because there was no comparison group and patients were not given the same regimen of intensive activities before stimulation, activities that might themselves have therapeutic benefit. Is it possible that you're just exercising the patient and the patient without the stimulation would have gotten the same effect, he asked. Another question neuroscientists raise is whether, or in what circumstances, it is better to surgically implant electrodes or place them on the skin, a less expensive method called transcutaneous stimulation. The new study's authors consider surgical implantation superior because it is much more specific, said Dr. Weber, allowing it to target the muscles that control the wrist and hand. Others, like Chet Moritz, a professor of neurotechnology at the University of Washington, have reported improvements in spinal cord injury patients using electrodes on the skin, including benefits lasting months after stimulation ends. It's true we can't tune the shoulder to this degree and the elbow to this degree and the wrist to that degree, but the nervous system seems to take care of that for us, he said. Several neurological experts predicted that both methods could eventually be helpful and appropriate for different patients, depending on their health and other factors. All the experts, including the study authors, said stimulation would be more effective if accompanied by rehabilitation therapies. The study's authors said their continuing research is evaluating patients of varying stroke severity, age, and other characteristics to determine who would benefit from their approach. They have formed a company and said they envision that, as with similar technology for chronic pain, patients could adjust their stimulation via app or remote control. If stimulation becomes regularly available to stroke patients, Ms. Rendelik would welcome it. I did threaten to not show up to the surgery to get it removed, she said. I just wanted it all the time. While she has devised one-handed ways to do activities like driving and typing, everyday frustrations rankle, like needing her husband Mark, whom she calls my left-hand man, to slice steak for her. In the trial, I did get to cut up a steak, which was awesome, she said. Then, fork in her left hand, she speared a piece and lifted it to her mouth, one previously impossible movement at a time. Up next, what dentists wish you knew. Don't get high before your appointment, step away from the charcoal toothpaste, and a few other lessons to learn. By Jancy Dunn from the New York Times. I don't receive birthday cards from many of my friends, but I do from my dentist. A smiling tooth wishes me a happy birthday, along with a reminder to make an appointment. Yet I've postponed my last three visits, having somehow convinced myself that, like cleaning the gutters on my house, I'll just put it off until there's a problem. This is a mistake, said Tricia Cordy Segal, a spokeswoman for the American Dental Association and a practicing dentist in Brooklyn. A lot of people see the absence of pain as an indicator that nothing is going wrong and say, my teeth are fine, I don't need to go, she said. 
The ADA does not have a set schedule for checkups. Some people need to visit the dentist once or twice a year, while others may require more trips. But what the three dentists I spoke to for this newsletter all agreed on is that you must go. Often, Dr. Cordy Segal pointed out, there is no pain at all with periodontal diseases, which are usually caused by an infection of the gums and the bones supporting the teeth, and affect nearly half of all adults 30 and older, potentially leading to tooth and bone loss. And the last thing you want is to have to make an emergency appointment when you're in pain. For one thing, she said, when that happens, it is inevitably on a weekend or when you're on a holiday internationally. Here are five other things that dentists would like us to know. Your gums should not bleed when you floss. As every dentist you've ever seen has probably said, you should floss daily. It's true that if you slack for a while, you may see a little blood when you restart the habit, said Tiang Chang, an instructor in oral health policy and epidemiology at the Harvard School of Dental Medicine. But stick with it. It's like starting to exercise when you haven't in a while and your muscles ache, she said. I encourage patients to push through that initial period because they need that debris to come out to get back to health. If your gums have been bleeding for a prolonged period of time, see your dentist, said Purnima Kumar, chair of the Department of Periodontology and Oral Medicine at the University of Michigan School of Dentistry. Would you be worried if any part of your body bled, she asked? Don't normalize gum bleeding. Dr. Kumar also suggested that people who have gaps between their teeth use an interdental brush, a small, skinny, absolutely fabulous brush designed to reach the hidden places where bacteria grow. Step away from the charcoal toothpastes. Toothpastes containing powdered activated charcoal, marketed as a natural teeth whitener, have grown in popularity in the past few years. But a 2017 study published in the Journal of the American Dental Association concluded that while charcoal toothpastes may be fashionable, they do not have a whitening effect. Instead, researchers found that the abrasiveness of charcoal toothpaste could cause tooth hypersensitivity, that particles of charcoal might lodge in gum pockets, causing damage and discoloration, and that few contained fluoride. These toothpastes also leave gray-black smears on your towels. Tellingly, no charcoal toothpastes have received the ADA seal of acceptance, a good resource for vetting products. Instead, Dr. Jiang said, whitening toothpastes that receive the seal are good to use every day. You don't need an electric toothbrush. Brush your teeth. Do it twice a day against the gum line at a 45-degree angle for two minutes. That's all the ADA says you need to do when it comes to brushing. Both electric and manual toothbrushes work. That said, if you're an enthusiastic brusher, said Dr. Zhang, an electric toothbrush with a pressure sensor to tell you to take it down a notch can be helpful, as brushing too forcefully is one of the leading causes of receding gums. The health of your mouth is linked to the health of your body. The mouth and the rest of the body are intimately connected, but in healthcare, they are often treated separately, said Nazar Al-Hebshi, a co-director of the Oral Microbiome Research Laboratory at Temple University's Kornberg School of Dentistry. And a growing body of research shows how dental health can affect other parts of the body. Dr. Al-Hebshi listed five diseases for which there is moderate to strong evidence that periodontal disease may be a contributing factor, including diabetes, certain cancers, and cardiovascular disease. 
So if you maintain very good oral health, you are at lower risk of developing cardiovascular complications, for example, he said. People with diabetes who treat their gum disease may even be able to lower their blood sugar over time, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Don't get high before your dental exam. In a 2022 survey of dentists conducted by the ADA, half reported that they had treated patients who were under the influence of marijuana or another drug. I am seeing this in my office, Dr. Cordy Segal said. One reason patients may self-medicate, she noted, is that they are nervous. But, she explained, you can't consent to a treatment if you're high. If patients have anxiety, it could make things worse, and I'm not able to numb people as effectively, she said. A 2019 study of cannabis users undergoing minimally invasive procedures found that a quarter of them had needed twice the anesthesia as patients who didn't partake. Inquire about options for pain control if that's what worries you, Dr. Jiang said. For teeth that are particularly sensitive, she added, start brushing a few weeks before your appointment with a desensitizing toothpaste that contains potassium nitrate, such as Sensodyne. And if you did take a weed gummy before you arrived, tell your dentist. You'll join the 67% of patients in the same ADA survey who reported that they were comfortable talking to their dentist about marijuana. You know, we're not here to judge, just to provide you with the best care, Dr. Cordy Segal said. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.